1: study of the book of Revelation was really a preparation for this chapter tonight. This is a critical chapter and in many ways it's a little bit kind of disappointing to teach Catholics about this chapter because they are blissfully ignorant for the most part about the firestorm that this chapter ignites among Protestants. Books have been written on this chapter. Movies have been made based on this chapter. And to us, well, it's kind of ho-hum, just another chapter in Scripture. What am I talking about? A very key word among Protestant denomination. The millennium. The millennium. Anybody heard about the millennium here? Now, might tell me how many were former Protestant, perhaps. Hey, how, who has not heard about the millennium? Good, good. We've got some people who are blissfully ignorant about this whole problem, which is great. That's how it's supposed to be, because it's not a problem. But it is a tough chapter. And it is going to put to the test the approach we've taken so far in understanding the book of revelation namely that this is not a book about the end times this is not the, a book that is telling us what is going to happen merely when god puts an end to this world but rather it is a book about the dominion of the church the reign of jesus christ the way christ reigns over the world throughout the ages. And yet, this particular chapter is about the end times. Really? I'm not kidding. This one does speak about the judgment. And it has been, for many interpreters, a source of puzzlement and uh, concern. Why? Think about it. If all along you've taken the, the, the stand that from the trumpet onward, we're dealing with the final judgment. From the trumpet onward, including the bowls, all that we're dealing with is the final judgment. Then you get to this chapter, which is speaking about the final judgment. And you're kind of squeezed. I mean, we've been talking about a final judgment, it, it would seem, for, what? Uh, nine chapters. And now we're talking about the final judgment again? So how do we deal with this issue? Well, a couple of ways. One, we go with the cyclical theory. St. John is repeating the same information over and over again for the purpose of teaching us different truths. You might be happy with this explanation if you want. I'm not. Why? Think context. You have a small Christian community living within a Roman environment, which is intrinsically evil, being persecuted by the Jews from the temple. So think a little bit of the Christians of Iraq right now. Think of a bishop writing a letter to the Christians of Iraq today. And this bishop is telling them, I have had a vision from God. God is showing me something. Question number one. Do you think the Christians of Iraq would really, really care if that vision was about what is going to happen in the year 12,000 242? I mean, they would read the letter, right? They would find it perhaps interesting. Maybe even uplifting. But is that what God is trying to tell them? Second question. How many of them do you think would be really inspired if the bishop told them the same thing three times? In different ways. I'm talking about what? I'm talking about rank-and-file Catholics, right? I'm not talking about theologians who have PhDs in Greek grammar. Am I? Do you understand? That was the context of St. John. Who were the Catholics back then? Well, people with families, with kids, being persecuted, trying to make a living. No different. So how would a letter that speaks repeatedly of what is going to happen at the end of the world would be something really urgent or something that would deserve a blessing. Blessed are you if you... Blessed he who reads this letter and blessed are they who listen. Why? Our faith is an incarnate faith. It is enfleshed. It is about today, about right now. All of Scripture is about the present the 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 holy present we speak of the presence of god right well god is present in the present what good does it mean does it do me if god is present in the far distant future thousands of years from now how is that a personal god How am I to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ if this book is talking to me about what he's going to do in 10,000 years from now? Instead, if that bishop were to write to the people of Iraq right now and say to them, I got a vision from God and it's about today. It's about what your sufferings are going to bring to the region. Let me show you. Let me pull this veil and show you what you're doing during mass really how do you think they're going to react well it's going to put their faith to the test isn't it because now they're fully responsible he's basically saying to them the bride of christ is coming down because of your sufferings many would say you know what i prefer the other message Because I don't have any responsibility in this, right? Suddenly, I am responsible. Am I not? Yeah. That is the crux of this whole message, and we see it today. Very, very clearly. And it applies today, as it did 2,000 years ago, as it will do in 10,000 years from now. Day after day after day, until the end of time. Let's read it. Chapter 20. So in context, let's recall that in chapter 19, which we've dealt with last time, we saw, reading from the end of the chapter, just so that we can create context, and the beast was captured, reading from verse 20, chapter 19, verse 20, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, and the rest were slain by the sword of him who sits upon the horse, the sword that issues from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And if you recall last week, we spoke of the fact that uh, one of the curses in the Levitical law is for someone to have his flesh being eaten by birds. Meaning what? No proper burial. And that's the idea behind the, fles- the birds being gorged with the flesh. This is not about some sort of a horror movie. It's a way of saying that those who were cut off from the covenant are under the curse of the covenant and therefore will uh, receive the full brunt of the curse. Okay, That's what is... That's the idea of, the, of the, all those birds ga- gathering, and, and that's what we dealt with last week. Now that this has done, we see the flip side, beginning with verse 1 in, on ch- in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were ended. After that he must be loosed for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. And when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison... And will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, that is Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they would be tormented day and night forever and ever." Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place were found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The millennium. What does millennium mean? It's a Latin word that means 1,000. 1,000, right? How many times have I said 1,000? About three, four times. So... um, We're going to deal extensively with this business of the millennium, but there are a number of other elements that make this chapter seemingly difficult to interpret. Let's go through them. Those are the parts that can lead us to puzzle, to wonder about this passage. First, we see an angel that comes down and he seizes the dragon, Satan, and bound him for a thousand years in a pit and he sealed it over him. So that he doesn't deceive the nation. But then after a thousand years, he's allowed to deceive the nation a little bit. Hold on to this thought for a second. Because now there is a parenthesis. Which is the first resurrection. Right? How many have heard that there was actually a first resurrection? And then there's a second resurrection. What is this first resurrection? But that's what we're talking about. Thrones and seated on them those to whom judgment was committed and so their souls of those who had who had been beheaded first time that saint john speaks of those who have been who had been beheaded he had not mentioned them in this manner before interesting key on this word beheaded and then those who who were who, who had been beheaded for their testimony and then who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. We've got two groups. Those who had been beheaded for the testimony and then those who simply lived the faith and did not give in, did not compromise. Those are the two groups. Those, the souls of these people are coming up to judgment. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. All right, so who are they? Where are they reigning? When do they reign? What's up with this thousand years? But right now we know that Satan is going to be bound in a pit for a thousand years, right? Meanwhile, there's these thrones that are set up and these souls are judged, and they're reigning for Christ for a thousand years. You're following me so far? Okay. The rest of the dead did not come to life. What who are the rest of the dead? Who were excluded? Yeah, those who did not offer witness to Christ or, let's go through the list, right? Worship the beast or its image or have received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And what is it to receive a mark on the forehead or the hand? Recall, we were not talking about a physical mark. Just as baptism is not a physical seal, the mark is not a physical mark. It's an indication of those who did what? Compromise the faith or the moral law for purposes of economic gain. Covers the gamut of those who effectively are not following the Lamb. Those did not come to life. Notice. But nothing else happens to them. They just did not come to life. Right? So what is the first resurrection? Only those souls who were faithful to Christ. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and and they shall reign with him a thousand years. One more time, they're reigning with him a thousand years. All right. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loose from his prison. Now, this parenthesis is closed. We're back to Satan now, who's loose from his prison. He will come, he will deceive the nations, and there's going to be war war of Gog and Magog, and then what? Then, after the war, there is a white throne that is, set, that is, that is, uh, that is established. Now one throne, before we had thrones, now we have one throne, white throne, and, and him who sat upon it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place were found for them. Who that might be, Right? It is definitely a sign of the divinity. What does it mean that earth and sky fled away? Recall this. Every time we see this, earth and sky flooding away is a sign of what? Deconstruction. Just as God rolled up or, or, or pulled out the sky and covered the earth at the time of creation, Genesis, now he's rolling them back. But the notion of them flaying away is also a sign of His awesome majesty. The awesome majesty of God. So there's deconstruction. This old world is going away. There's always a connection between the moral order and the physical order. Between the the way we worship and the order in the cosmos. Because the cosmos is a macro-temple, Right? And the temple is a microcosmos. So they're always bound together. Books were opened, and this is now the final judgment, obviously. All the dead are raised, and judgment is rendered. Those who were not following the Lamb are sent to the second death, and those who did, to everlasting life. Alright? So, overall, broadly setting aside this business of Satan being thrown in a pit and all that good stuff, we have here a description of the final judgment. With the minor wrinkle, this business of first resurrection. But what we see here is God triumphing over Satan, locking him up for a while, a thousand years, during which the saints are reigning with Christ. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is, is loosed loose for a little while. One final battle happens, and then the final judgment comes. Clear? As mud? Let's deal with the first segment. Because um, I told you this is the pinnacle. This, this chapter sort of brings it all together. But I think as Catholics, you're going to be very excited. Well, maybe I'm optimistic. At least I was excited. <laughs> be- because this is amazing. To me at least. I don't know. Uh, I can't speak for everybody else. But that is really amazing to me. All right. I want you to, l- to slow down. An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him. No? You don't see it? Yes? Okay, what do you see? Yes, in the back? Matthew 16, 18. Ah, very good. What's Matthew sixteen eighteen? Have you ever thought of it this way? Whatever you loose on earth is loose in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Have you ever thought of it this way? Whatever. Whatever. There were no exception clause to the whatever. Right? He didn't tell him, read the fine print, Peter. Right? Whatever. So, what's the purpose of the devil then? The devil is bound. And a thousand years later, what happens? What is the keyword used? And after a thousand years... He must be what? Loosed. Whatever you bind is bound. Whatever you loose is loosed. What have I been saying all along? That through all these activities, through everything that is happening in the world, Christ is what? Glorified and reigning. He's actively reigning in history. Right? Even the devil is part of his Rain. That is why, in a very fundamental way, nothing evil ever happens. Because what is evil? That which is against God's will. Since the establishment of the cross on earth, nothing evil ever happens. In a fundamental way, it doesn't. Because everything is part of God's kingdom. You see it? If the devil is bound and loosed according to God's plan, what does that say about all the activities that the devil do? They are here for our what? Exactly. St. John of uh, Ars, le le curé d'Ars, St. John of Ars, had a beautiful way of saying it. You know, he had a lot of dealings with the devil. A lot. I mean, at one point he was in a uh, retreat. And during the night, the fellow priests heard a huge commotion in his room. And they ran to his room, opened the door, saw him bound in the, the um, in a, in a drapes. And they were on fire. And the devil was after him constantly. Eventually, St. John of Ars, who by the way, barely managed to finish all his uh, exams. And, and his bishop thought that he was so simple he didn't know what to do with him. So he sent him to a far remote little village called As in France. You know, you kind of blink. You, you, you get there. You blink. You're out of there. He wanted a very you know light load for him. Right? He ended up spending like like Padre Pio, right 14 to 16 hours in the confessional. But eventually, any time there was a huge attack on him, he figured it out. He made the correlation. Oh, well, that means somebody tomorrow is really going to convert. And so, whenever he was really beaten up, the following day he'd be, hmm, today is when you're going to have a great catch. When are to catch a big fish. And it never failed. He understood what God was doing. Guess what? It's the same in our lives. It's the same in our lives. God puts us to the test. Yes. God sends our ways, obstacles and difficulties sometimes. And things we cannot completely explain or understand. But those are the, those are the hidden gifts. Those are the unmistakable signs that He loves us. That He really cares for us. This is a hard truth. And I don't expect all of you to understand it right away. It's when we live it that we really understand it. What I'm saying to you is that if you're going through a pain of your own, a difficult time, a trying moment, think of the apocalypse. It applies to you just as it applied to this community back then. It is God's way of saying, you have seen nothing yet of what I had set for you. Set aside for you. Persevere in my love a little while longer. And see what I had set for you. Do you understand that? Because he is king of king, which means he is king of your story. He wrote it. He knows the end. And the end is and they lived happily ever after. Let's go back to the text. All right. I was talking about Satan being seized and put into a pit. Uh, Bobby uh, very, very wisely made the connection with Peter. Let me ask this question. If you have a pit, you have a pit. What is a pit? It's a big hole, right? Big, deep hole. And you're going to seal the pit. What do you seal it with? It's a rock, right? A rock. Okay. What did he call? What is Peter? Where was Peter martyred? Rome. What is Rome? The throne where Satan. See what this is all about? Huh? Let's read it again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, bowed him for a thousand years, bound him with what? What is the key for? The key, the, key, the key is to lock the chain, right? And threw him in the pit and what? Sealed it. So, Christ gives to Peter what? A key and the power to bind and loose which he also gave to the other apostles altogether. But the key was given only to Peter, no one else. What did he call Peter? Where was Peter killed and buried? In Rome. Now, let's see if this holds. And the way we see if this holds is the understanding of key and chain and rock in ancient Israel that these three words mean anything to the Jews back then so that when he said key chain and rock right that these three words had a meaning that from which we could infer this this analysis this um, this explanation that we're proposing here right otherwise it is we, we, it's sort of poetic if it has no foundation So it has to have a foundation. The key is drawn from Isaiah 22, where it represents the authority of the Davidic kingdom. More specifically, the authority of the prime minister of David. The position of prime minister was a position that was put forth by David. Who was the prime minister? He was the guy in charge of David's house while David was away. More specifically, in charge of the palace and of David's family. And how would you recognize the prime minister if you were to walk in the palace? You'd recognize him because on his shoulder, he would have the key. He was the man who held the key, who could open and no one could shut, who could shut and no one could open. That was a position that was established by David, which was, Confirmed by God as a position. And that was a symbol leading to the Petrine office. So when Jesus told Peter, and I give you the key, all the disciples immediately understood. Here's the king, here's the prime minister. Okay? There's no doubt. It's clear. I mean, there are other things we can talk about in the relationship with Jesus and, and, and Peter. But that, that is sufficient. That's the key. The pit... Boy, was there ever a pit. The pit, called the bottomless pit, in Revelation 9.1, is a word used in the Old Testament and the Jewish tradition for watery places of the dead. Okay, so it was a very well-known and understood term. Um, the underworld, or Sheol. So the pit is synonymous with Sheol. Jonah speaks, for instance, of how he was saved from it. And here I'm quoting from Jonah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, and then 5 and 6. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice, for thou didst cast me into the deep. So the deep, the pit, same thing. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about me, my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring me up, bring up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So it was an established term used to describe the watery world of the dead. But there is more to it than that. The pit was also connected with the temple of Jerusalem. To the Jews back then, there was a big rock in a temple which is still in existence today. Right? The mosque in Jerusalem is called what? The Dome of the Rock. Why is it called the Dome of the Rock? Because there is a huge rock in there. Okay? And to the Jews back then, that rock sealed what? A pit. So, symbolically, the temple of Jerusalem was built where? On top of what? The pit. And the pit is what? The kingdom of whom? Satan. Right? The temple is sealing Satan. With what? The rock being the foundation. Do you see it? Okay. Part of the rabbinic tradition, this is not a tradition with a capital T, this is tradition with a lowercase t. So part of the folklore or their understanding. But it's important because it tells us what the Jews believed at the time and how they viewed this relationship with the pit. According to Jewish tradition, the temple was built on top of that special foundation stone. They call it the foundation stone, right? Which was the plug to the netherworld. And so rabbinic tradition passed on the story of how David almost inadvertently unleashed the waters of Sheol when he came to lay the foundation of the temple. When King David came to dig the foundation for the temple around the foundation stone, he dug a depth of 1,500 cubits, which is about 2,250 feet. At length, he found a projecting stone, which he wished to remove. But the stone said to him, this thou canst canst not do. David asked, why not? And it answered, I cover the mouth of the abyss. The blood of the sacrifices was set to run down from the shafts under the altar onto the foundation stone below, so that the blood would cover Sheol. Here are a couple of other really interesting facts about this stone. This is uh, testified to by scripture. What happened on that stone? What is the one very important event that took place on that stone? The sacrifice of Isaac happened on that stone. Now, the rabbinic tradition has a lot more to say about the stone. They will tell you that this was the first spot on earth that came out of the sea. This was where Adam was formed. And this was where the flood began. Because by unplugging the abyss, all the the water of the Sheol came out, burst forth, and covered the earth. And so on and so forth. But that fact, we know, is true, that on that rock, Isaac was sacrificed. So, the notion of a pit being covered, you don't have to say with what it is covered. It is a given. It's a given that is going to be covered with a big rock. And it's a foundation stone. So now, if we stick with this notion that... What is happening here is the foundation, is the establishment of the church in Rome. Why was the church established in Rome? Because, precisely, Rome was the seat of Satan. I mean, I'm not making this up. The book of Revelation says so during the letters, if you remember. Right? The throne where Satan sits, right? And that's why, just as Jerusalem was, the temple was built on top of that stone... The church was built on top of Rome. That's why we call ourselves the Roman Catholic Church because the foundation stone of our church is in Rome. You understand? That's why we are all Roman Catholic. If that's the case, it explains the millennium now, doesn't it? Let's read it. He sees the dragon, an ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and seal it over him. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loose for a little while. So, what are the thousand years? If, if the angel, effectively, through the work of the Apostle Peter, his martyrdom in Rome, shut and sealed Satan, and that inaugurated the thousand years. What are the thousand years? A thousand, remember, what is a thousand? Ten times, per- ten, times ten. What does it mean? Lots. Doesn't mean a thousand. Don't be, again, don't be hypnotized by numbers. How do we know that? Well, here's one example. Oh, yeah, Psalm 114. In Psalm 114, right, God says, I am the God of a thousand hills. All the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. Does this mean that the cattle on the the hill 1001 don't belong to him? Is that what it means? No. He means all of them. They're all mine. Right? If you're wondering about that, again, we have a series on the symbols and and scripture, which you can get from our site, Corbono.com. And... You can go back and listen to the series where we spend a lot of time talking about all the different symbols and how we properly interpret them, especially numbers. But thousand means just many, 10 times 10 times ten. So what is a thousand years then? It's an indefinite period that started with what? With Peter dying in Rome and will extend till what? The end of the world. So what is that thousand years? It is the age of the church. That's the millennium. We're living in it. We're part of it. Okay? This has been consistently the position of the Catholic Church. So let's talk a little bit about this thousand years. You need to understand those things because you're going to come up, come, come across them. In the Protestant circle, you'll find three positions. Pre-mill, premillennialist. These are folks who believe that there's going to be a reign of a thousand literal years. Okay? And then Christ comes. That's why it's called pre-millennialist. Meaning that the millennium happens right before the coming of Christ. And then they talk about the rapture and the seven and a half years and... Three and a half years of suffering and all that, and on and on and on. A whole series of movies done based on this interpretation. Okay, It is also known as Kiliasm. Kiliasm is one of the oldest heresy in the church. Kiliasm is also a thousand, but it's a Greek origin, whereas millennium is a Latin origin. It's the same thing. All right? This notion that there's going to be a literal, materialistic reign of Jesus Christ on earth for a thousand years has been... A heresy, it goes all the way back to the age of the church. There is a very interesting um, fact that illuminates a letter to the Galatians uh, that uh, St. Paul wrote. I'll probably come across it as I go through my notes. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll get, get, get back to it. But for now, the, the idea is that the thousand years in Protestant circles, you have this pre-mill position, pre-millennialist. Then you have the post-millennialist. The notion that the thousand years will occur after Christ comes on earth. So first Christ comes, then there's going to be a reign of thousand years, and then the final judgment. Again, it's a thousand literal years, called post-mill. And then there are variations now that you have mid-mill, where Christ comes actually in between. And it's a big deal. You've got to understand, for Protestant, this is huge. A lot of conversation goes over this. Now, what is the Catholic position? Uh, Here, I'm going to give you a technical definition. The Catholic position is that of the inaugurated, hopeful, optimistic, amillennialism. Inaugurated, hopeful, optimistic, amillennialism. Meaning that this millennium has been inaugurated with the death of St. Peter... It is hopeful and positive and optimistic, meaning that it is about the changing the earth to converting people to Christ. And it's amillennial, meaning we don't believe in a literal thousand years. This is what to be a Catholic means. And this has been consistently the position of the church. Here's a couple of quotations for you. So, St. Ire- Irenaeus said, The Word of God, the Maker of all things, conquering Him. By means of human nature, him being the devil, and showing him to be an apostate, has put him under the power of man. For he says, Behold, I confer upon you the power of treading upon servants and scorpions, and upon all the power of the enemy. In order that, as he obtained power over man by apostasy, so again his apostasy might might be deprived of power by means of man turning back again to God. St. Augustine, the devil was conquered by by his own trophy of victory. The devil jumped for joy when he seduced the first man and cast him down to death. By seducing the first man, he slew him. By slaying the last man, he lost the first from his snare. The victory of our Lord Jesus Christ came when he rose and ascended into heaven, then was fulfilled what you have heard when the apocalypse was being read. The lion of the tribe of Judah has won the day. The devil jumped for joy when Christ died, and by the very death of Christ, the devil was overcome. He took, as it were, the bait in the mousetrap, He rejoiced at the death, thinking himself death as commander. But that which caused his joy dangled the bait before him. The Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap. The bait which caught him was the death of the Lord. Why am I reading these passages in connection with the millennium? Because I want you to understand something that is very important about what the devil is trying to do. And you will see in this century, there is what I call a devilish tendency among many Catholics. The devil is doing everything he can to bring about the end of the world prematurely. Why is the devil trying everything he can to bring about the end of the world prematurely? He, yes, he, what, he, it's when he would be loose. That's true. But there's something else. Catch us off guard. Us off guard yes. Sorry. Yes, he would take more people with him. Well, well yes and no. It's debatable. But, but, but think about it. What is What do we call this age? It's the reign of Jesus Christ. Right? So he's trying everything he can to shorten it. Tertullian, who was one of the fathers of the church, stated in his masterful defense of the Christian faith, We are a body united by a common religious profession, by a godly discipline, by a bond of hope. We meet together as an assembly and congregation that as an organized force we may assail God with our prayers. Such violence is acceptable to God. We pray also for emperors, for their ministers, and those in authority, for man's temporal welfare, for the peace of the world, for the delay of the end of all things. This, my friends, is the Catholic faith. We assail God with our prayers, and such violence is acceptable to Him. The liturgy makes history. Liturgy conquers all. Are we assailing gods with our prayer? Or are we busy trying to change the church? One more thing I want to point out to you before I move on. The the, the chain. Did you know also that next to the big dome of the rock, there is a smaller one? known as the Dome of the Chain? Because under Solomon, you know, Solomon had received God's wisdom. That doesn't simply mean, you know, he can win at bingo. It meant a lot more. It meant that Solomon was, had power of exorcism. That's the wisdom that God gave him. He could exorcise. Had power of exorcism. And it was said that he had a chain. He had a chain with which he could ferret out those who were lying. So he would go and get one to hold a chain, and if this person was lying, a a link from the chain would fall. So the chain was used to point out the one who is lying. And what is the devil? The father of all lies. Interestingly enough, I'm going to tell you a little story that Father Nabil told us. Which I don't think he mind. It's, uh, it's not private. When he was in the seminary in Lebanon, they had a retreat at the convent of uh, uh, Saint Anthony, Koshaya in Lebanon. And there, there is actually a little grotto where there are chains. And those chains were used by the monks to tie those who were possessed for exorcism. Now, here you have a group of seminarians who are learning during post-Vatican II and who are, of course, very scientifically minded. They go to that monastery and they're having their retreat and they look at that stuff as essentially, you know, pious superstition. Well, one night they decided to actually go to the Grotto without permission. And while they're there, they look and they see the chain and there's a little lock, very small lock. And so they, with a key. So they open the lock with the key and make sure it's all oiled and working perfectly well and there's absolutely no problem with it. And they look around and they knew one of them was actually very pious. They knew this, this particular um, uh, seminarian was very pious. So they bound him with a chain and locked him up and surely enough, opened the key. And you can ask Father Nabil about the story. And then there was another seminarian which, shall we say, was a little bit more modern. Uh, They did the same thing, right? They brought the seminary and put him there, locked the key, and couldn't open it. It would not open. They had to go wake up the superior, who had to go through the rite of exorcism all night before he could actually open that key. He became a monsignor, by the way. All right, let's move on. Let's talk now about this business of the resurrection. Oh, yes, good question. Why is the devil loose at the end of time? Why is the devil loose at the end of time? It's a good question. Come on, you've been here for, what, two years now? You should be able to answer that question. Why is the devil loose at the end of time? God will use it. For what? To glorify? Yes, for God's glory. But why Why particular? What they tell us, right? To go gather all the nations to make war against the saints, Right? To make war against say we're going to get to it in a, in a minute. But that's why he's loosed. Now we're going to find out why, and more specifically, in a, in a little while. So just keep. Remember this one. I need to talk first about the thrones and the first resurrection. So, first we have thrones which are set, and those to whom it was given sits on the thrones. Who are those who are to whom it was given to judge? Can you think of another situation in the Book of Revelation where we've seen people sitting on thrones? Twenty-four elders. Who are they? Bishops. Right? Pardon? Not them. Yeah, the, the souls. The souls are judged. Not, so, let's, let's go back to the text. And I saw the souls. He saw the souls. He didn't say, right? He did not say those were dead as in physically dead. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, those are physically dead, right? And for the word of God, and who had not worshipped, and then, and, I'm sorry, who had been beheaded for the testimony to Jesus, and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So those are dead, right? What is going on here? Let's summarize Christ is risen. So let's talk talk about this first resurrection. I want to show you first that this is not something peculiar to the book of Revelation. It is throughout the New Testament. I'm going to go through this first and come back and talk about what this really means. So for instance, in St. John's Gospel, we hear Jesus say, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's the first resurrection. Has passed out of death. So who are those who who, who participate in the first resurrection? Those who hear the word of Jesus Christ, right? Secondly, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Letter of St. John, chapter 5, verse 24, 25, and 28, 29. Okay? St. Paul drew the same distinction between two resurrections. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 through 23. So there are really two resurrections. There is the first one and then there's a the second final resurrection. Now, it is important that we note here that really um, St. John is telling us that those who are dead are not effectively coming to a first resurrection on their own, but they're really participating in the first resurrection, which is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Effectively, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first resurrection and there is a participation into this resurrection which brings us to life. Okay? And among those who are dead, all those who were righteous, all the saints, are now participating in this resurrection. Where? In heaven. Why is that important? Because up to this point, the gates of heaven were closed. Right? And all those who were dead in the hope of Christ were in a special area of Sheol. But they were not in heaven. Now, the gates of heaven are open and they are participating in this first resurrection. And interestingly enough, they are reigning with Jesus Christ. As what? As priests. What is the purpose of a priest? Offer sacrifice. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We have a problem. If they are in heaven... What did St. Paul tell us about heaven? How many priests are there in heaven? One. We only have one priest in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can we have all these other priests? They're also in heaven. They're beheaded. Those are the souls of those who died in Christ. They're priests and they're reigning with him for a thousand years, which we understood to be the age of the church. Come on, guys, you're Catholics. It should be obvious to you. The communion of whom? The saints. You understand why we can ask for their intercession? This is the intercession of the saints. Facing us in Scripture. They reign with Christ as priests. And as priests, they offer sacrifice, which means they have power of intercession. Why is a priest offering sacrifice? to intercede before God, right? This is the communion of the saints who reign for a thousand years and have power of intercession in heaven for us. You understand? Do you see why you can't really explain this book without the Catholic Church? You have to resort a lot of Intellectual gymnastics to come up with some explanation if you don't have the church. And believe me, I've seen it. Very, very interesting. But useless. This is why the church tells us that when we ask for the prayers of the saints, right? we can ask them, To intercede for us because they are priests before God. Why are they priests before God? Because of their good deeds. Their good deeds follow them. Therefore, a saint in heaven can intercede for us based on what? On the heroic virtues he or she has won while living on earth. This is why, this is why, souls of baptized babies cannot intercede for us. You see the difference? That's why they're not canonized. They don't have heroic virtues to rely on to be priests before God. Okay? Whereas those saints who have lived this heroic virtue, heroic life on earth, are in heaven offering up what? All the sacrifices that they've done on earth as means of intercession for us. But, wait, the same can be said about what? About who? You! Right now! This is the whole idea of storing a treasure in heaven. All these little sacrifices, all these little sufferings that we go through. Because in the grand scheme of things, if truth must be said, our sufferings are really little. You know, there is a little bit of self glorification in our sufferings we derive quite a bit of prideful mileage out of them. But in the grand scheme of things, as I think one monk puts it, what is life? Life is a little perturbation for a little while, and after that, smooth sailing. That's life. But that's what we're storing for ourselves in heaven, so that we may reign with Jesus Christ during these thousand years. You understand? This is the reign of those saints in heaven. Oh, yeah, there was one more point I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I really want to stress. Christian dominion, which is what the church is all about, it's the dominion of the church on earth, does not pass primarily through political power. Political power is only Secondary we always are, have the temptation and the mistake of thinking that political powers are going to save us. Right? Exhibit A. Exhibit A to Christian Lebanese. During the Civil War, they thought Israel would save them, and Syria would save them, and France will save them, and the United States will save them, and maybe China will save them. And one political power after the other, and every single time they got swatted real bad, and God said, nope. Nope. No, 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 and no. And he's still saying no. Because the temptation of the political solution is still there. To worship at the altar of Baal. And think that politically we're going to be saved. And God says, no, I love you, I'm going to swat you, because you still don't understand. I'm not going to give you what you want. Why? Because I look at the way you live. I look at the billboards you have, which are sinful. I look at your nightlife, which is sinful. I look at the way you're using contraception, which is sinful. I look at the way you allow all these sinful behavior in your community. So if I were to give you peace, more of you would go to hell. Why should I? They're still waiting for a political solution. Instead of reforming first their moral life. Going back to the church on their knees and truly living the liturgy and then watch what God can do. We in the United States can have the same temptation. We're going to have a political hero. I know a really good friend of mine who actually had a picture of the current president in his kitchen. And he even told me once, he's a saint. Well, that was short-lived. The picture in the kitchen, that is. I mean nothing against this president over the previous ones. Don't get me wrong, this is not a political statement. We're all fallible men. Okay? We're all fallible men. I'm not trying to say that I am better than he. Right? My point is thinking that somehow we can escape Christ's dominion by creating a political reality is fantasy. First, let us take care of little things. Let us take care of our parish, of our families, of our lives. And when we are good stewards of little things, God will put us in charge of big things. That's how it goes. And that's the truth we've forgotten as Catholics. Running amok trying to fix the world when our lives are in shambles and we're not living the liturgy. Not going to work. One point about the beheaded. The reason why St. John talks about the beheaded is because of a particular figure, which is that of St. John. Why is he then including St. John the baptizer? He's the one who gave testimony to Christ and he was beheaded, right? So obviously, the image of St. John comes up. Why is he talking about St. John in this manner? Because St. John was what, according to Jesus Christ? He was the greatest of the prophets. So therefore, he is... Right, it's, it's a metonymy, which is a part of speech representing the, the, the whole. Right, if you said, um, if you said that the hand of God was here, you don't really mean that only his hand was here. It's a manner of speech whereby you say God was here. So the part represents the whole. And so St. John represents all of the old prophets. So all of them are also included. One family. St. Paul was beheaded as well, but that's there's a temptation to think that he's talking about St. Paul because, of course, he talked about St. John. I mean, Saint, I mean he, he, the, the, the vision speaks of St. Peter, so we would really like it to speak also of St. Paul. Because as the Maronite liturgy says, St. Peter laid the foundation and St. Paul raised the structure. Right? This is how we see St. Peter and St. Paul. But I think it would be really hard to pull this one. I mean, it's, it's there. I don't think it's contrary to, to our understanding of the faith. But I would not be able to say, you know, it's conclusively part of, of Scripture. But of St. John the Baptist, is obvious. Because testimony and beheading are exactly St. John the Baptist. So how do we reign? How, how are these uh, uh, saints reigning in heaven? By being priests. What does that mean? They reign through the liturgy. Liturgy. Again. Right, rain through the liturgy. We spoke about the millennium and a thousand years, and how there's this understanding about that in, in, in many Protestant circles of being being a, a uh, exactly a thousand years. And I told you about Kiliism, which is this notion of the millennium, which was very very old, and uh, premillennialism, the notion that the millennium will happen a thousand years and Jesus will come after, is is seems to have originated uh, by the Ebionite. Arch heretic, Serintus. Okay, so we're talking apostolic age. A false apostle who was an opponent of both St. Paul and St. John, Syrintus claimed that his doctrine of the millennium had been revealed to him by angels. He would not be the last one to claim that he received a message by an angel. Right? <clears throat> and it's interesting that St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians which is greatly concerned to refute the legalistic heresies of Sorrentes, begins with these words, But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Okay, uh, Not very ecumenical, shall we say. And, and this is a bishop speaking, an apostle. When he says, let him be accursed. It means exactly that. Okay, Galatians 1.8 St. Irenaeus records that St. John ran out of a public bathhouse upon encountering Serentis and cried, Let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall, because Serentis, the enemy of the truth, is within. If he lived this age, he'd have a little problem, St. John, speaking this way. The enemy of the truth? How could you say such a thing? So, enough said about the millennium. I think we've covered... Uh, the basics and you understand it effectively the millennium is the age of the church we live through it before I move on ponder this from David to Jesus Christ a thousand years went by so there was a symbol of the millennium during the Davidic reign from the beginning of the reign of David all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ a thousand years went by Interesting little detail. Um, Another really important aspect I told you, it's optimism and hope. When St. Boniface came against Thor's sacred oak tree in his mission to the Germans. There was a sacred oak tree which was the tree dedicated to Thor, the German god. St. Boniface did not asked the Germans to fill a petition or to set up a committee to discuss the advantages, the pros and cons of Thor versus Jesus Christ. Okay? He didn't do any of that. When he saw the tree, St. Boniface chopped it down. It was an old tree, very old tree. He had no problem with that either. He chopped the tree down and built a chapel. And when the Germans saw that Thor did not smite him, guess what they did? They converted. They're not idiots. Right? Why would you serve a dumb God? I mean, this is the God's tree, and he let this other guy chop it down. Well, obviously, this other guy has a God that's stronger. Common sense, isn't it? And there's nothing strange about it. This is the attitude that saints have. Why? Because this is the dominion of Jesus Christ. This is His reign. We are here to convert the world. We're not here to enter into debate... Um, expl- I mean, you know, have a common ground. There's no such thing as a common ground. Alright? There's the truth which we have to cheerfully, cheerfully, charitably, joyfully, unabashedly, proudly bring to the world. No excuses. No mumbo-jumbo. No kumbaya. We're bringing the God Crucified. We're carrying the cross. Now, we move on to the thrones and the first... We've talked about the thrones in the first resurrection. I'm not going to go over this. What I want to talk about now is... What I want to talk about now is Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog is another one of those things that, again, in the Protestant circles make a lot, a big deal about it. So, what is Gog and Magog according to the Protestant circles? Well, it's the Russians. Right, uh, it's the Russians. Why? Well, because uh, Gog is Georgia because both of them start with G. I'm not making that up, by the way. It's one argument that is presented. Right? Uh, they try to... Okay, no, it's not Russia. It has nothing to do with Russia. Okay? Gog and Magog was a fre- frequent standard expression for the rebellious nations of Psalm 2, which gathered together against the Lord. Um, in Ezekiel 38... Verse two, there is a talk of Gog and Magog, and there they mention Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal. Um, the reason I'm mentioning these to you is because it is again something that come up in Protestant circles quite often. Meshach and Tubal, over which Ezekiel three thirty eight two says God is a prince. Um, no, Meshach and Tubal are Hebrew names for peoples of Eastern Anatolia. Gog probably has its ultimate source in Giygis or Gugu, a king of Lydia in the 7th century BC. Magog may be from Assyrian, Mat-Gugu, land of Gog. So these names have nothing to do historically with contemporary cities of Moscow and Tubalsk, which is one expression you might encounter, that Gog and Magog, or Meshach and Tubak. Meshach would be Moscow, and Tubal would be Tubalk. N- nothing to do with any of that stuff. Okay. The the idea here is that Gog and Magog are names that essentially represent for Jews terrifying forces threatening God's people. Because when the people of Anatolia moved, and as the Assyrians moved also, there were terrifying forces. So essentially it's an expression used to represent these people. Like, for instance, assassin that we use right now in English. The root of that name, assassin, is in the Arabic. Hashashin, which means drug users. Okay? And that's where the word comes from. Okay? So it, it came to represent a certain set of people who did violent acts in a specific way and then the word moved into the common use of the language. So Gog and Magog became common usage among Hebrews to talk about terrifying forces coming against them. Not any specific population in particular. And, and so this is also reinforced by St. John's observation that the number of them is like the sand of the sea which is the same image used for the Canaanite nations conquered by Joshua. So that's the key. You remember when we said, and this is Joshua 11.4, you remember when, when you asked me why is God allowing these people? Right? What happens? We typically, again, understand it upside down. We think that when we see the number of them to be like the sand of the sea, we think, oh boy, they're the strong ones, we're the weak ones. Okay? Because we have a political understanding of Scripture. We're not biblically based. Biblically based, it's the other way around. It's Joshua with his little army against the numberless armies of the enemy. It is Gideon with his little group against the numberless army of the enemy. What is being showcased here? Not the fact that these guys are strong and powerful and mighty. What is being showcased is the triumph of the people of God. That's the reason why the devil is being loosed so that those who serve him may receive their judgment and that his church be vindicated one more time gloriously for the greater glory of God. You understand? That is why the devil is allowed to be loosed at the end. And then he's then thrown in a pit and the end comes. This is the book of the glory of God, but it is also the book of the glory of his bride, the church. Truthfully, as you study and meditate on this book, it is very difficult, nearly impossible, I would say, to provide a cohesive, cogent explanation of the book of Revelation that doesn't resort to cyclism, to, to, to cycles or, or, or collapses all the chapters into a sort of extended finale at the end of the time but is rooted in reality, is rooted in our daily life, and is meaningful to us today that through the liturgy, God is not only transforming us, turning us into saints, but is also transforming and ruling the world. And our participation, our glory begins right now through our prayers. Through us giving our lives to God, serving Him, and coming to the church, living the liturgy as God intended us to live the liturgy, and to celebrate it, to celebrate Him, to celebrate His church and to thank Him for all that He has given us. In the expectation of being able to live with Him forever, one day. God bless you. Yes. The three temples, the temple of Solomon, and the temple of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the temple of Herod, were built in exactly the same location. Yes. The question is, did I say that the angel was St. Peter? No, I did not say that. No, no, no. The angel came down. I'm saying, what does it mean physically, in the physical reality of the church? When he bound the devil and put him into the pit, this was the power of the resurrection of Christ. But what was the rock that he used to seal him with? It is the new rock, the new foundation stone, which is Peter, on which the church is built. So who is the angel? Which angel is it? it? He is a member of the angelic... um, um, The angelic... um, Acquires, And when one angel acts, all angels are acting with him. Because all are in union with God. Alright? Yes. The point is this. When Christ died on the cross, Christ bound Satan. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, many interpreters revert back and say, all of this is nothing more about the passion of Christ. The book of Revelation is about the passion of Christ. In one sense, it is true. It is about the passion of Christ. But we miss. The other important point, which is again, communities living in danger. Christ died and rose, so effectively the victory is over. I mean, the victory is done. We have won, but it has not yet been physically manifested. Right. And so what this is showing us now is the manifestation of this victory, which was won by Christ, and we participate in it. So while Christ has won for us life everlasting, he also willed that on Peter the church be founded. So both are true. But I think really the focus here is on the liturgy and the way Christ brings this victory of his to us throughout the ages. That's the first resurrection, exactly. That's Matthew, St. Matthew, who tells us that when Christ died, tombs of many saints were opened and, and entered the city and many saw them. That's the first resurrection, yes. So question number one, there was a rock, there is a rock in Jerusalem still today, yet we're saying that uh, Peter is the rock. So are we having now two rocks? No, the first one is a symbol, the second one is the reality. The first one was only temporary and didn't really work well. The second one works really well. Of course, and that's when you go back to Matthew 21 and you understand, even Matthew 13, and you understand when Jesus says, when the devil comes into his house and seen it swiped and cleaned up, he goes in the wilderness for a little while and comes back and brings seven demons worse than himself. What was he talking about? He was talking about the cleansing of the temple. You get it? it? Jesus went to the temple and cleansed it because the temple no longer functioned as The seal on the pit. The devil was let loose. Right? But Jesus came to the temple and cleansed it. And then what did he say? He said, Behold, your wife, your house is left and desolate. So he left. What happens? The devil comes back and brings seven, and the state of that house becomes worse than it was before. He was talking about the temple. So that's why the temple got destroyed. It was a symbol of the reality which is the church. Your second question was... Um, and so, by the way, one point I want to bring to your attention. When we say that the devil was sealed in the pit, we're not saying that he has no influence anymore. We're saying something very specific. He cannot deceive the nations anymore. Meaning that he cannot blanket right, blanket um, uh, error on the nations. Let me give you an, an, an example of what I'm talking about. Because most of us live in communities which are very much soaked by a christian conscience even though they may not profess themselves to be christian i had a conversation with two people from india and we're talking about abortion and both of them readily admitted without any problem that abortion kills a child no problem with that but then they proceeded to say that they had no problem with it because it's not their children And they didn't mean it in a sense, they were not trying to be mean. They just stated as a matter of fact. They're not our children, so why would we care? Now, I don't hold it against them because the conscience is not Christianized. That sense of charity that pushes you to think of the child of a stranger, whom you do not know, as equal to your own child, that is Christ. Without Christ, that cannot exist. You understand that? That charity that says we are all equal before God, that is the light of Jesus Christ. Without Him, it doesn't exist. So that's what we mean by saying He cannot deceive the nations anymore. Even now, today, you see still the triumph of Christ because anytime there is a war, everybody's worried about what? Collateral damage, which means we don't want innocent people to die. Before Jesus Christ? Collateral what? Oh, you mean we've, cut, we, we, we've killed a bunch of guys who could be our slaves? Rats. That would have been it. Okay? So, that's what we're talking about. The power of deceiving. Truth reigns. It could be perverted. People can deny it, try to fight it. But nonetheless, it reigns. Nations cannot be deceived because of the power of the cross. Okay? And yes, the saints reign and are interceding for us and the whole world before the throne of God today. Yes. Remember that the image of the beast was what two? I mean, the image of the of the of the beast was the false prophet, right? The false I mean, sorry, the false prophet made an image of the beast and even gave it life. So the notion is when you have any religion that masquerades for the true religion, you have the image of the beast. So, anyone who either worships the beast because they are there to get just pure economic gain or follow false religions, right, are, are part of this group. Yes, what I was saying earlier, that th- those who are alive and part of the first resurrection, that extends also to us. We are part of the first resurrection. How do we know that? In baptism, what happens? What do we say in baptism? You die with Christ, and what happens? That's your first resurrection right there. And blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. For on those, the second death has no power. Now, those who achieved their glory in heaven, done. Us, it is sort of conditional. As long as we remain truthful to Jesus Christ, death has no power over us. Death being being what? Being consigned to hell. That is the real death. All right. Why don't we finish with a word of prayer?
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.